welcome in. It's Downtown the Podcast. Coming up all ones here, episode number 111. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell with you and brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We are here in the Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine. It's where we do our daily show downtown, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine. And, of course, with streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. A couple of interesting conversations this week on the program. We'll talk with historian and author Joanne Freeman in the second half this week. Dr. Freeman, a professor at Yale University, author of a number of books, including The Field of Blood, about the history of violence in Congress. And she'll talk about where we are as a nation, how we got here, and the path forward. But we get things underway this week by talking with a singer-songwriter who's been making great music for more than four decades now. He burst onto the scene in 1982 with his self-titled album. The hit Someday, Someway was everywhere on the radio. But he never had another top 40 hit as a singer, and but he has had some as a songwriter along the way. And he's had an interesting career, always a critical favorite, but never able to get the radio airplay that one would have thought. Although, again, he's had several songs become hits for other people along the way. But a really interesting guy shares his thoughts on his career in the music business itself. Here's our conversation with Marshall Crenshaw on Downtown, the podcast. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me. Let's, uh, well, let's talk about the newest stuff here first and uh, the brand new reissue of uh, one of my favorite albums, Miracle of Science, the first one you did uh, with Razor and Tide. It's such an interesting album because it was, uh, well, it was a little bit you and then uh, some work with some of the Nashville crew like uh, Bill Lloyd, Brad Jones, and others. Correct, yeah. It was uh, my first self-produced album. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it's one of my favorites now, now that I've revisited it <laughs> and uh, got some distance from it. You know, in the aftermath of it, and I'm always like this, but, you know, I was kind of uh, critical of it for this and that reason. But that was, you know, it's 20 years old now. So I, I pulled it out and listened to it about a year ago for the first time since then. And I thought, well, let me just tweak this a little bit and I'll just fudge this a little bit, adjust that a little bit. And then and I did all that. And I'm like, now, nah, yeah, I, I get it now that it's a great album. It also includes, I think, maybe my favorite cover that you've ever done, uh, your great version of 2541. Thank you. That's one of my favorite tracks I ever did, and I love the song still. I still play it live whenever I get to play live. And, uh, you know, I met the songwriter right around that time, Grant Hart, and uh, we were friendly after that. You know, that was a, a recording where we were just all set up at once in the same space, and we just counted it off and... It, it just blew up like that, like you hear it on the record. You played with a lot of Nashville guys through the years, and, and back when when your first album came out, I was working at two different jobs. I was programming for a pop station, a Top 40 station, but also working on a country station, and we played uh, several tracks from that first album on the country station, um, Someday, Someway, but also Marianne, which later ended up getting covered by Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and I, to me, that's one of the great things about your music, that you can't label it with any one specific genre. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was a surprising thing to me in the beginning, was that Country Act did pick up on the songs, like the Bellamy Brothers did a couple of my songs. Right. 
and the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band did a couple of my songs. And I was like really, like I said, surprised and also delighted about that. Um, Marianne from my first album was a, a B-side on one of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band's hit singles back then. So it was really cool, you know, to get that kind of acknowledgement from those guys. And uh, But the Nashville thing really opened up for me personally when I met Bill Lloyd back in 19... 19- whatever it was, and he was just, it was Foster and Lloyd at the time. They were just getting started, and I met Bill, and we just kind of hit it off right away. Let's go back to the beginning a little bit and and talk about your roots. You grew up in the Detroit area. Uh, Your mom, I have to appreciate it, as a a full-time teacher myself, uh, she was a teacher. Your dad worked a number of jobs, including in local government for a while. I was fascinated when I heard this story in an interview that your dad was actually on a ship at Bikini Atoll when they blew it up? Yeah, he was. And the funny thing is, and it is funny, if you know what I mean, is he never told me about it, ever. He never said anything to us kids about any of that when we were growing up, which, you know, I guess is kind of normal for guys of his generation. I, You know, that's the stereotype. But sure enough, you know, uh, after he died, I learned about it from my mother. And then about two years after that, I met a guy named Robert Stone, a documentary filmmaker, and I asked him, you know, after I talked to him for about an hour, I said, well, what was your first film? And he said it was Radio Bikini about the Bikini Atoll bomb blast. And I said, well, I got to see that right away because my dad was there. And uh, so I watched Robert Stone's movie on YouTube, and I kept looking for my dad because there's all kinds of, you know, scenes of sailors on deck. He might be in there somewhere. <laughs> I only knew about it, it from another movie. I, I learned about it through watching The Atomic Cafe. Oh, yeah. Well, there's another favorite of mine from that time period. But anyway, yeah, you know, my dad, he um, he was there. And again, just, you know, if, if something like that happened to me in my lifetime, I would have told my kids about it. <laughs> but he never did. One thing he did uh, do, though, is introduce you to a lot of music and share his love of music with you. And, and that took a lot of different forms, R&B and early pre-rock and roll. Yeah, he had... Uh, let's say singular musical taste for that time and place. And for, again, somebody in his age range, but that's what he liked. And that was another thing I found out about him after he passed away, or he told me uh, on his deathbed, actually, he told me this, that he grew up in a black neighborhood. And so another thing, you know, like why save that until then? But anyhow, uh, he told me that. And I thought, well, that really explains a few things (laughs) about his musical taste for one thing. So yeah, interesting interesting stuff from my dad you told a great story on uh, on your live album which by the way is the best live album title ever i've suffered for my art now it's your turn you told the story about your dad winning a car in a contest but the car didn't run is that a true story yeah it is it's a true story this thing was dragged into our driveway you know it was a joke contest and my dad won the booby prize and uh but yeah, I used to sit in that car and, and the radio worked for some crazy reason. And so I would sit in the car and listen to the radio. Well, and clearly you listen to a, a lot of different music along the way because you, you are so familiar with so many of the great sounds. And, and I, I saw something where you said you were always, you're always more of a singles guy as opposed to being someone who would listen and, and gravitate to albums and the deep cuts. Well, uh, yeah, pretty much. And I guess that's because that's where I started, right? So uh, that's it. Just felt like 
that was it. You know, uh, my older cousins were enthusiastic rock and roll fans, and they would buy 45s every week and bring them home. I just fell in love with those things and was really intrigued by them always. So, uh, I mean, that really still is where I live as far as I'm concerned. You like my favorite music. Now that I'm older, it's more, you know, kind of solidified than ever as I just really love that 50s and 60s rock and roll music. That's the base. That's the basic thing from starting point for me. We're talking with Marshall Crenshaw here on Downtown. Beatlemania really opened the doors for you. Uh, you played John Lennon for a couple of years in, in the regional production and then uh, in one of the national tours as well. What was, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was. I was an understudy in New York. Although I never did the show on Broadway, but uh, you know, I was in proximity to that, and uh, that's where it started. So that was the first kind of monumental thing about it. It was that I wound up in New York because of Beatlemania, and then when I got in a company, it was out in the West. It was in, at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. So then I was in that company until it closed. Then a touring company for most of a year, I guess. You know, like all around the country, cities all around the country. This is in the late seven or 79. Uh, yeah, it was really great. It was just a great bunch of doors that opened right then in life, you know, just a chance to travel. And I mean, that was huge in itself, in and of itself. You got to play another musical hero several years later uh, in La Bamba playing Buddy Holly. That That had to be a little bit surreal, I would think. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. I mean, I'd already been in another movie earlier that year. We were in this one called Peggy Sue Got Married. Right. So that was my first time on a movie set. Very cool. And we were there longer for that one than I was than I was with the Bamba, even though in Peggy Sue Got Married, we just kind of stood around in the background mostly. There's some shots of us in the movie. But uh, La Bamba was like three days, I think. But I was actually supposed to do something resembling acting in La Bamba. So that was a you know, really unique experience, definitely. 1982. But the Buddy Holly part of it, I mean, that was that was pretty that was pretty amazing. I mean, I had been a fan of his since when he was walking the earth. Uh, so I'm glad they asked me to do it. 1982, the uh, the album came out that absolutely blew up. Someday, some way, became a a huge hit. But one of those albums where. The people like myself who love it, uh, for us, every track on the album was a hit. It introduced me to the music of Arthur Alexander. I had missed the Beatles cover of Soldier of Love, so that that was great. But how does how does anybody react to that situation where all of a sudden you became just this, this critical darling, but with that also goes pressure, including from the record company, to, to turn around and give us something new right away? Yeah, you know, when we got signed, when I signed the contract, I thought, okay, now the hard part's over. <laughs> but that wasn't right, you know. It was like I was dead wrong about that. But uh, I mean, it was every it was a whirlwind, you know, and it was uh, just a lot to take in. It was uh, challenging and all that stuff. I mean, it was mind blowing and heartbreaking too. And on some days, but you know, overall, it was a gas, and, uh, and I loved it. You got the bad with the good, you know. You guys got the the next album, Field Day, out uh, pretty quickly there, and I, I, it yeah. remains one of my favorite albums. Not everybody embraced it for various reasons. Uh, to me, one of the great mysteries in in rock music is to listen to whenever you're on my mind today and imagine that that didn't become a huge hit. What what went wrong, if anything, or was it just a timing issue? It was politics. 
in a big way. It was like behind the scenes, you know what, B-U-L-L, blank, <laughs> blank, blank, blank. Real, that's really a lot of it, you know. Well, wasn't uh, there, if I if I remember the story, wasn't it a, a record guy in, in uh, D.C., Vic Wyckoff, that, that got it played and it got to the top ten in Washington, but the, the Warner Brothers people on the West Coast didn't care for that because he wasn't their guy? Yeah, I've told that story. But, that, yeah, that's right. It, it was put on the air, immediately went into the top ten. So I was right about it. It was a hit record, but it didn't turn out to be one. You know, uh, in re- like a like a legitimate one, but it was, and uh, I still hear it now. You know, I hear it when I'm at the airport or at the drugstore, or uh, you know, it's had longevity. So uh, I was right about it. Uh, along the way, you've gotten to work with a lot of talented folks, including a, a very successful collaborations uh, with the guys from the Gin Blossoms that led to a big hit, and uh, and you've continued to do some some writing with them since then, right? No, I haven't actually. But but the great thing about the aftermath of this is that you know there's been some lasting friendships out of it with me and the guys in the band. But yeah, that was a great experience, you know. But they were just you know they were just on that path where everything was, you know, they were they it just was uh, everything was clicking for them and working for them business wise and in terms of what they were doing. So uh, yeah, it was great. I hooked up with them, and it, it just was a life changer in a great way. How did you get involved with the film Walk Hard? That was the thing that just kind of came out of left field, but uh, I found out later on that it was a guy who I hadn't actually met yet, but he was a, you know, he's a manager. He's a rock manager, and I talked to him on the phone once, but he was talking to a music supervisor just about songwriters that might be good for this project, and I don't know why, but the manager... You know, he wasn't managing me, but he he mentioned my name to the music supervisor, and pretty soon I got a call, and then I went from there. And then, uh, you know, there were like 75 or 80, literally, that many submissions for the theme song of that movie. You know, that many songs called Walk Hard. So it was like a contest, kind of, or a lottery or something. But uh, I I got the theme song, which was cool. And the film has really become a cult classic, because... Especially for anybody who knows the music industry, it absolutely nailed so many aspects of it. And and the the title song is part of that. You walk a fine line when you're you're writing a song that uh, you want to sound like something that could have actually existed, and yet there's there's a little tweak in there. And I thought it was a brilliant combination. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it was so easy to write too. It was really. I guess, you know, because like, I knew what it was supposed to be about. Mm. I didn't have to sit there and try to figure that out or drag it out of my own imagination, you know. I, it was proscribed, what it was supposed to be about. I just kind of meditated on it a little bit, and then I went to take my daughter to a horseback riding lesson, and you know, I'm just standing there watching her go around in circles, and all of a sudden the whole song just flashed into my brain, you know. I wish they were all like that. <laughs> You, uh, you had a radio show that I, I used to tune in every once in a while. I love the bottomless pit that you got to, to show off uh, your deep knowledge of several different types of music. Was that was that a fun experience for you? You used, you used to listen to the bottomless pit? Wow. Yeah, we tune in online. And you're a, you're, you know, you're a radio guy, so uh, I guess I must have been doing something right. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, I love doing it, and maybe I'll do it again sometime. I had to put it on hiatus, but... Uh, it was great, you know. It was they just I just had my hour where it was mine to fill up, and uh, 
the state radio station's a really great station, too, WFUV in New York. So that was cool. It was a good platform to be on. And they just, you know, I had carte blanche, which is uh, the only way I could do it, really. You know, I, if, some, if they placed expectations on it, that would have confused me. <laughs> but, <laughs> anyway, you know, I, I'm glad you liked it. Well, that's to me. That's the kind of radio that that is memorable. So much of radio, like like everything else these days, is pretty homogenized. And it was so great to hear something unique and original. Hear songs you might not hear. And and I was thinking that uh, yeah, it must have been a similar experience you had. What was the radio station that uh, was such an impact uh, on you when you were growing up around Detroit? Well, there were different ones at different times, you know. But uh, I I read a book of. I read a book a couple of years ago about rock and roll radio in the 50s. <clears throat> and uh, when it kind of all started to come together, the DJs chose their own music. Yeah. And there was, you know, there were, there were sources of information that they would use about what other places were playing, you know, other stations around the country. But in the end, it was their personal choice, you know, as to what to play. And there were certain DJs who were supposed to be like really savvy about picking hits and all that stuff like that. But, um, and uh, anyway, I digress. But uh, well, let me see. In the late '60s, there was WABX, which was one of the first FM rock stations mm. in the country, and that was again a, a thing where the DJs just played whatever they wanted to play. And uh, that didn't last long, though. FM rock radio didn't stay that way for maybe just a handful of years, and then it went the opposite way. But uh, after that happened, I split. From the FM dial and went back over to the AM dial and listened to CKLW out of Windsor, Ontario, which was the top 40 station, but it was really eclectic. And again, there was one person, a woman named Rosalie Trombley, and she was entirely responsible for the playlist all by herself, right? She didn't, and she didn't use any call out research or consultants or anything like that. She just made it up herself. I mean, you know, she knew that she had to get ratings and that she had to keep people engaged, and she had to play hit records and stuff. Those were the rules, but other than that, she just used her own judgment, and it was a great station. I love that. I read an interview where you said, uh, and everybody writes for their own reasons, you write music so you can go through the recording process and make records. Yeah, that's really it. You know, like, I don't I don't think like a writer and uh, or function like a writer. I'm a, I'm a guitar player, and I love to make records. I'm a singer, too. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I write songs just as a vehicle, you know, so I'll have something to play and sing and record. But you, you've done that thing that, that I, think, I think musicians, artists of any kind strive to do, and that's, that's make a career as a working artist. And, and you've been doing it for more than four decades now. Uh, it, did, did you get, have you gotten so far what you wanted out of that business? I feel like I mostly have, yeah. And I also kind of understand the nature of the beast and all that, you know, like that took time to figure out. But I mean, now, you know, now I'm old. I'm older. I guess I'm old. I'm 66. That's old. That's not old. So, you know, from this vantage point, I'm like, yeah, you know, it, it could have been worse. And it, it, uh, it worked out really nicely, actually. So, uh, you know, I kind of bumbled along and went through uh, ups and downs and all that. But, I just, you know, it doesn't bother me that I had to work really hard sometimes. You know, I think it's great. I'm glad it happened the way it happened. I want to talk about another project you're working on. It sounds fascinating to me. Uh, you're involved in putting together a documentary on, on Tom Wilson. And uh, you know, for anybody who doesn't know him, he's one of those guys that 
inside music fans certainly know he worked with got everybody sun ra uh dylan he's the guy if i remember right that that after Simon and Garfunkel had gone their separate ways and, and Garfunkel was back in school and Paul Simon was over in England, that he added uh, the guitars and a little bit of drums, and all of a sudden, Sounds of Silence became a huge hit. Yeah, uh, which was the miracle for Simon and Garfunkel, you know. Uh, but, I mean, it goes back further than that, in that Wilson had signed Paul Simon to Columbia Records because he was interested in him as a songwriter. At first, he was interested in, in Simon as a songwriter for this group called The Pilgrims that Wilson had put together. And Wilson put this group together with the idea of creating the Black Peter, Paul, and Mary. And uh, he heard Sounds of Silence and some of Paul Simon's other tunes and uh, thought, well, these would be great for The Pilgrims. But then anyway, uh, he wound up doing an album with Simon and Garfunkel called Wednesday Morning, 3 a.m., mm. which is they're still around. You know, it's their first album, and it's, it's just a... Uh, acoustic instruments it's like a folk album quote unquote but it didn't go anywhere but then wilson just like couldn't get that song out of his brain sounds of silence and around the same time he put the electric instruments on that one he had already done some experimental sessions with putting electric instruments on bob dylan tracks because he was trying to talk bob and bob's manager into having bob go electric you know (laughs) And, took, and eventually Bob came around to the idea, but Wilson had been like trying to push him in that direction for a couple of years. Uh, so that's really, this guy, Wilson was a visionary and an innovator, and, uh, you know, he changed popular music. He also signed the Velvet Underground when nobody else would. And right. Zappa, when Frank Zappa, too. So this guy, if, if, if he hadn't been around, you know, popular music would be something other than what we recognize it and how we recognize it. So he's important. And uh, somehow, I don't know how or why, but somehow his, his name just kind of got crossed out of history. But we're going to put it back. We had Al Cooper on the show a couple of years ago, and he told a, a great Tom Wilson story that Cooper was just hanging around the studio when Dylan was cutting like a Rolling Stone. And, and finally, Wilson said to him, what, what are you doing here? And he said, um, I'm, I'm playing the organ. Well, what have you got? And he improvised that organ intro to the song. And Wilson said, I like that. Let's keep it. Well, yeah, Al actually snuck out into the studio and got behind the organ while Wilson was, like, taking a phone call. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, like, every part on that record is great, right? I mean, everybody talks about that story with Al Cooper, but, like, I'd like to hear, and maybe we'll dig into this, but I'd like to hear the story of the guy that played piano on the record. His name was Paul Griffin, and uh, that guy, Jesus, I mean, he played piano on all the Burt Bacharach, Dionne Warwick Mm. records, and, I mean, everybody that played on, like, a Rolling Stone was really on it, you know. But the session was really, it was chaotic, and nobody knew what was happening that they only did one take all the way through and Dylan just split and thought that they had not gotten it, you know, but boy, they really did get it. Didn't they? Oh, I would say. Yeah. So have you, have you got a target date for the, uh, for the completion and the release of the film? Well, things have hit a snag, of course. Right. Uh, At the beginning of the year, I was sure that we would finish it this year. And now I'm starting to think again that we will, but uh, we're just kind of getting back into it as of about two weeks ago. Uh, when so we get... let's say, you know, it, hopefully it will, could be finished by the end of this year. That would be a miracle, but I'm trying. And uh, the sooner the better, though. I think we should jump on it, like, right about now. 
Well, it sounds great. I can't wait for that. When we when we get back to some semblance well, we of that we didn't mention the fact that Wilson was African American. So that's I mean, right. That's sometimes people, you know, they see the list of stuff, you know, Zappa and Dylan and blah blah blah, and they're like, you know, shocked to learn that he was black. But anyhow, he was amazing. When when we get back to doing live performances, uh, more shows with the Smithereens in your future? Yeah, I would hope so, most certainly, and the Bottle Rockets too. And is the plan to reissue all of the Razor and Tie albums? Yes, uh huh. Not we we did the first one in January, and then uh, the second one, you know, is to be to be TBD, right? I don't know <laughs> the release date, but you know, yeah, they're all supposed to come out. And and that gives you also a chance to add and write and record some new music. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. With each reissue, uh, if you buy the vinyl, you get a new you get a forty five inside. With two new tracks, and by new I mean you know like brand new. That's that's how I trick myself into having to record more stuff, <laughs> committing committing to doing it. You know, uh, yeah, that's my project right now. Excellent my recording project. Marshall, thanks so much. Uh, I've enjoyed your music for a long, long time, and it's great to have the opportunity to talk with you. We appreciate it. Thank you, Rich. Again, thanks for reaching out to me and uh, giving me a chance to run my mouth. We love it. Form. Anytime you got something going, we'll reach back out and do it again sometime. All right. Be well, okay? That is Marshall Crenshaw on Downtown, the podcast. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. When we return, historian Joanne Freeman here on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With a network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Now let's talk a little history on Downtown the Podcast. Our next guest is a professor at Yale University, the author of a number of books, including The Field of Blood. Dr. Joanne B. Freeman joined us recently to talk about well, the state of the world and much more. We've got the whole pandemic going on, but then we've got a, another situation uh, around the country. As uh, well, I, I ask every historian we talk with this, hoping I'll get an answer. <laughs> how, did, how did we get here? Oh boy. <laughs> um, there is no one easy answer, but the the best part of your question is the assumption underlying it that it has taken us a while to get here. That that what we're experiencing now, and it's like a well, I don't want to say perfect storm, but it's a it's a mix of crises that's definitely each one could be historic and together it's kind of off the charts, but um some of them, you know, they have really deep roots. And let's let's look at the pandemic and our response to that. And people have different political views. Obviously, the whole basis of our political parties began with discussions over the size and the role of the federal government. But a pandemic seems to be one of those situations where having a federal government response, keeping states organized, might have been preferable to this every state for themselves approach. Well, you know, as a as a political historian and as one who writes about the founding, 
on that level, this has been really interesting to me because um, I don't think in the course of my lifetime, I've had a moment where I felt that feeling that profoundly, right? That I'm like, hey, <laughs> where's, the, where's the federal government, right? Shouldn't something be happening here? And I think probably most Americans, and I think this also includes a lot of historians, kind of takes the basics of our federal system for granted, right? It's a federal system and the states have some responsibilities and the national government has some responsibilities. And then something like this happens and you realize that the flexibility that allows it to work sometimes doesn't work so well. Well, that's uh, obviously something we're experiencing every day here in America. Um, people have been critical of the Trump administration, and uh, obviously people go to extremes in their criticism or their support, it seems. No one can have a middle-of-the-road view these days. But is the Trump administration going through a, a systematic assault on the Constitution from a historic perspective? Well, from a historic perspective, um you know, it's really interesting being a historian in this moment because part of my brain uh, responds like a historian and says, well, this is interesting because it reminds me of this and, you know, this is the trend of that. And then the other part of my brain, it just kind of howls <laughs> like <laughs> like many Americans. Um, I, you know, I think when I teach the Constitution, and I've been doing that for a couple of decades now, um, I always say that the Constitution, if you think about how short it is, and the amount of work that it has to do, it's really a framework of a government more than anything else. So for two decades, I've been saying, well, the Constitution is a framework. And when it started out, the assumption was that there'd be a lot of improvisation and precedents being set, that it would be figured out as it went along, but that a lot of it is unwritten. Now, I've been saying that for decades, but this is the first presidency where I suddenly realized in my gut that there's a reality to that that I hadn't focused on before. And that is, if the system is propped up by norms to such a large degree, mm. norms are not particularly sturdy and they're easily stripped away. And that's some of what we're experiencing. When we have a president who seems to want to expand the power of the executive branch, that's happened along the way. Franklin Roosevelt certainly did that in his efforts to pack the Supreme Court, and others have tried it along the way. But has anyone else been as, I would say, as successful in growing the power of the executive? Well, um, I mean, that's a hard, <laughs> my historian brain has kicked in. That's kind of a hard question to answer. I would say one thing that has been distinctive about this presidency has been the degree to which presidential power has grown by um, reducing the power of some of the other branches or um, corralling the power of some of the other branches. You know, I early on um, under the Trump presidency, I, I'm on social media, I will confess I'm on Twitter, and I was tweeting about checks and balances. And I was apologizing for it because I thought, well, this is obvious stuff. My apologies, whoever's reading this, but it seems like it's important to note that, that there are different branches of government, they each have different powers and they check and balance each other. And a lot of people responded by saying, oh, thanks for explaining that. Uh -huh. oh, and, right, and that really <laughs> told me that some of what we're experiencing now is a product of who's in power. But I also think that some Americans don't realize the degree to which what's going on now is, is really warping the system. And, and there seem to be a fair number of Americans who are happy with 
an imperial presidency who have even hinted that some form of authoritarian government might be better than what we've been accustomed to for 240 years. And and there's a part of me that understands that because we've, we've witnessed more than two decades of congressional deadlock and gridlock. And, and so there's frustration that things never get done. But I never thought I would live to see a time when so many Americans say, what's wrong with the way authoritarian regimes operate? Yeah, but I think, I think, well, there, I think there are a lot of problems in that assumption, but I think there are two really obvious ones. And one is, I think Americans believe that the United States is exceptional, meaning things just don't get really bad here. We're different. <laughs> things always end up for the better. You know, we're, we're always fine. We've gotten through crises. Hey, we got through civil war. It's all going to be fine. And some of what I'm saying now in my teaching is we can't assume it's all going to be fine. We can't assume it's all going to sink, but we can't assume it's all going to be fine. We are not in that moment now. We don't know what's going to happen. It's 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 a moment of extreme contingency. And so I think some of the people who think, oh, yeah, so you know, let's try something different, really still assume that somehow or other it'll all end up okay. The other half of that equation, I think, is that people who say that they would like or are happy with some kind of an authoritarian regime aren't thinking hard about the fact that they might not always be in agreement with the person who's the authoritarian <laughs> leader, you know, and that, that if someone is in power who they really disagree with and has absolute power, then what? You know, they, they might feel differently. So again, part of me thinks that we're in a moment when a real sort of supreme fundamental lack of understanding about our system of governance and what it allows and what it prevents, that people don't really have that. And, you know, the founding generation, you know, Jefferson believed that everyone should get, well, every man, every white man, uh, should get three years of education if for no other reason than that they would understand how the government works and they would recognize threats to it because a republic is vulnerable and it's not like a monarchy. And that never seemed to me like a radical <laughs> assertion. <laughs> but, you know, I find myself thinking about it these days because I think I just think people don't fully understand the, the moment we're in. Boy, I agree with that. And as a, as a high school teacher, I see that all the time with students. Now, I was a, a lad of 10, a precocious one, mind you. But uh, <laughs> in 1968, when, when yeah, I heard family members talking about, wow, are we going to make it through this year? There have been tougher times in American history. 1968 comes to mind. Certainly the Civil War years and those years leading up to it, uh, where on a historical ranking, does this time period stand in terms of our our divisiveness, yes, but also in, in the threats to our, our democratic system? Right. Well, you know, taking the very long historical view here, um, I step back and, and there are, we've had a good number of crises, the four or the handful that stand out to me that you can compare to the present, as you say, 1968, um, the, the Civil War and the, the moment right, the era right before that. Um, and also, you know, the, the poor founding era kind of gets a bum rap. But the, the late 1790s was another one of these moments of extreme polarization, one side othering the other as un-American, uh, people worrying about violence, Americans against Americans, all kinds of charges and conspiracy theories. So that was another moment that was very similar to all of these. And what's interesting about all of those moments to me is that in one way or another, those kinds of supreme crisis moments 
are moments when it's apparent to the American public that there's some fundamental aspect of Americanism or being American that's being debated. So obviously this in the Civil War era, that's slavery. You know, will it will there be slavery? Will there not be slavery? In the civil rights 1968 fight, it's civil rights. It's that fundamental question of civil rights that's being debated. In the late 1790s, they're talking about how democratic a country is this going to be. And when people elect Jefferson as president, they basically said, well, more democratic than the other side thought. And in a lot of ways, what we're talking about right now is citizenship and what it means to be a citizen and who gets to be a citizen and what rights do we have as a citizen. And in all of those cases, civil rights, citizenship, slavery, democracy, those are debates that are polarizing and extreme and, and get right down to the roots of what people think the United States is. We're talking with Joanne Freeman here on Downtown. Yesterday was an interesting day with the early decisions from the Supreme Court in their session, and none of them going the way the Trump administration wanted. And, and that's a reminder that we do have a system of checks and balances, and yes. particularly with the Supreme Court, it doesn't always turn out the way presidents imagine Earl Warren being an example, David Souter in more recent years, and perhaps now with Neil Gorsuch. Right. And, and right. And that is a very fine reminder that there are still some checks and balances that are that are functioning. I mean, part of what we're looking at now is the politicization of parts of government to a degree that I don't think we've certainly seen in a very long time, if ever. And so it's nice to see a court that although people have been worried about its politicization and, and the appointment or the prevention of the appointment of justices, it did operate under its own volition and come up with a decision that didn't agree with the people with executive power. And even just on that basis, above and beyond the decision itself, that was nice to see. As the COVID-19 numbers spike in some parts of the country and we close in on an election with polls showing the president trailing by double digits uh, in many places, what power does the president or the executive branch itself have, if any, to change, postpone, Put off the election? Well, there's a question. <laughs> um, you know, it's a hard question to answer primarily because we're seeing so many things happening and so many things have happened that um, I would never have predicted can happen. So if you're asking me, formally speaking, does a president have the right to postpone or delay or prevent an election? The answer might be, well, basically no. But if you're asking me, in this extreme contingency moment when we really don't know what's happening, who's going to step forward and actually enforce constitutional law, who's going to step forward at all, I don't know. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a frightening thing for me to be an American historian and say, I don't know if we're going to have a free and fair election in the fall. I say it because what that means is, as Americans, we have to be aware of that and we have to stand up and we have to to really force forward the things that will help create a free and fair election. We have to preserve the U.S. postal system. We have to work against voter suppression. We have to get people registered. You know, none of these things are partisan. They're all aimed at getting people to vote. They, they've been politicized in a way. But we, I think Americans need to be really aware that this is a moment where all of those things have extreme importance and 
there's honestly, I I will be watching with everyone else to see what's going to be going on in the fall. And I think the nightmare scenario that the people are already discussing is what what might happen if Joe Biden were to win the election and Donald Trump refuses to accept the results. And 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 I go back again to the founders in the election uh, between Adams and, and Thomas Jefferson. That was an incredibly bitter election. But John Adams, well, we weren't sure how that would play out at the time, but he took the high road. Could we see a scenario where a president refused to do that? And what are the next steps? Well, that's a good question. And and in 1800, the, the, that was part of it, was Adams going home. The, the bigger, scary part, and, and the kind of big unknown in 1800, was that the two Republican candidates, Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr, tied. And then the election was thrown to the House, and then the big question was, uh-oh. <laughs> now what happens, right? Because Byrd did not say, I, I know you guys meant for me to be vice president, so I'll step <laughs> down. He didn't, right? And so it took 36 times of voting to fix that problem, and people were arming themselves in some states, and it was a real crisis. And um, ultimately, it was the members of the House that agreed to allow the election to, to move in the way that they felt it had been intended to move. But that was a close call. I don't know, you know what that means about now. I mean, even if you know we were in a situation where somehow or other the election was thrown into the House, who knows with the House the way it is and the Senate the way it is, I have no idea. And who knows what state they'll be in after the election. So I have no idea. I mean, the, the question of what do you do if someone is elected president and the person who is in the position says, sorry, I'm not leaving, I don't have an answer to that question. I don't think anyone has an absolute answer to that question. And I think anyone who says, um, oh, well, you know, it's wrong, it's against the rules, he can't do that, is is not thinking along <laughs> 2020 lines at the moment. Has Congress, and I would say particularly the Senate in the Trump era, have they not only abdicated a lot of their power, but have they reduced their power going forward in our in our system of checks and balances? Well, certainly for the present, they're not exercising in any way their independence as a body and as a part of a branch, right? And that's that's pretty fundamental. So um, all we know already, and we see that every day about the ways in which Mitch McConnell coordinates things with the president and then tells the Senate basically what to do, and the Senate largely does it. And that's that's a, a major check that's, that's been destabilized and, and weakened in some way. The positive thing about the Senate and Congress is that it's going to be totally remade in the next election. And the way that it works really, really depends on who's in power and and the majorities and minorities of the people in power. So although one might say, um, wow, the Senate has now proven that it can or can't do things that others might want to do again, and that's true, but to a greater degree, I think, than the executive branch, um, it remakes it itself. The Senate slightly less often than the House, but still, Congress remakes itself with every election, and the American people have a chance to um, put people in power, different kinds of people, a much greater representation, different sorts of people that at least have the option for for more change, for, for the opportunity for more change down the road. You've written eloquently about uh, the history of violence in Congress in your wonderful book, The Field of Blood. Could you have imagined a scenario <laughs> where a United States senator challenges an actor to a wrestling match with his friend in Congress? 
no. <laughs> <laughs> and that's saying something because, you know, I wrote a book that has like 90 incidents of physical violence in the U.S. Congress. And even after that, when this came down yesterday about this this mess between the actor Ron Perlman and Ted Cruz and Jim Jordan and the sort of weirdness of wrestling matches and challenges and, and fights. Even I was, well, first of all, even I was surprised. And then also my second thought was, oh, no, I'm going to be getting a lot of email and tweets today. <laughs> People are going to be saying, oh, we know who can say something about this. Joanne. And Joanne really doesn't know what to say about this other than it, it the strangeness of it makes it so much of the current moment. I, I couldn't have said it better right there. I, I have to ask you about a, a couple things beyond the world of politics, because I saw this on social media yesterday. Your brother, are we talking about Mark, got a swimming lesson from Steve McQueen? <laughs> oh, he did, and he's going to love the fact that this came up <laughs> during this conversation. Um, my, my youngest brother, Mark, uh, we were moving to L.A. We were staying at a hotel. Uh, a nice hotel being put up by the company that moved my father. And we were sitting around the pool and my brothers, both of them, uh, couldn't swim. And a very nice man with a very big beard, kind of scruffy looking, came over and asked kind of if we wanted or if my brothers wanted swimming lessons and then went over and asked my mother if he she would mind if he gave my brothers, and I think ultimately it was Mark who had the swimming lesson. And my mother said yes, but at that particular moment, um, when a famous person got a phone call, uh, typically they didn't say, you know, well, blah, 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 come to the phone. That person usually has a number. <laughs> so they would be like, you know, well, number one, come to the phone. And a number was called and this guy went to the phone. So my mom looked closely and realized after not a very long amount of time that this was Steve McQueen, who apparently had just broken up with Ally McGraw and was living in this hotel. <laughs> so Steve McQueen gave my brother a swimming lesson. Wow. <laughs> That is and fantastic. I, will, I will be sure to tell him that I got to tell this story. Well, we love your brother. Love his new book on Modern Family. It's, it's so wonderful. It is indeed a wonderful book. I'm so proud of him. I can't even say. All right. And you mentioned this too yesterday, so I have to ask, all right, what was your favorite? You have great recall, you say, of 70s TV commercials. Which one comes to mind immediately? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, wow. Well, the one that comes to mind is really obscure and not politically correct in some ways. There was a breakfast cereal called Freaky's Cereal. And I'm not going to sing you the song, but I could sing you the theme song from the TV commercial for Freaky Cereal. And that all by itself, you know, that part of my brain could have a historical fact in it, but instead it has the lyrics to a really bad commercial jingle from probably 1972. That's okay. I've got a few of those lodged in there myself for, for no... <laughs> No coherent reason, but I can't I can't clean them out no matter how hard I try. They're good at that. They're so good at that. <laughs> Joanne, before we let you go, uh, well, you get some other things you're working on. Tell us about uh, something special that you'd like folks to know about. Oh, sure. Well, what I'd like folks to know about is a, a kind of webinar, although that sounds more formal than it is, that I'm doing every Thursday morning, 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time, called History Matters and So Does Coffee. And um, it's really an informal conversation in which I talk a little bit about something about the past and how it really sheds light on the present. I use a lot of primary documents and photographs and documents because I love talking about that stuff. Uh, and then I open things up for questions. Um, so it's about 45 minutes every Thursday morning. And I really invite people to come along. They can find the link on Thursday mornings at 
nchenet backslash conversations. That's wonderful. By the way, I thought of you a couple of weeks ago. We had actress Elizabeth Davis on, who was uh, on Broadway in, in the musical Once, and she was telling us uh, that she's going to be appearing in a new version of 1776 at American Repertory Theater at Cambridge with all women in the cast. I am dying to see that production. I I can't even tell you. I'm like every once in a while I go online and I'm like, can I get tickets? <laughs> I'm a I'm a major 1776 fan. And I, I know. Try to, I tell people that 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 in its own weird way, uh, to a lesser degree, was the Hamilton of its day. Actually, this is a, a final Mark story we can conclude with my brother. So Mark and Richard and I, the three of us. Uh, whenever we went anywhere in the car, we made my poor parents play the music to 1776. <laughs> of course, they had an eight-track tape because this was the olden days. And I've now been in the car with my brother Mark and my niece Olivia. And when she was a little younger, she insisted that Hamilton be played anytime she was in the car. And I just felt like it was karma. That's perfect. What goes around comes around, sometimes Absolutely. in very good ways. Well, <laughs> Joanne, thank you. as always wonderful to catch up with you again. We appreciate you making time for us. Thanks so much for having me. Great to get some historical perspective there from our friend Joanne Freeman. Thank goodness for historians, although, boy, have they got their work cut out for them. Yeah, it's not a job I would want in about 20 years when they start looking back and mm. recording what uh, happened now. There will be, um, I, hope, I hope I'm around to see it, but there will be more books written about this period in American history, I suspect, than, than certainly any presidency i would say since nixon i would think so yes it, it's the, there's been more upheaval in these last four years than than probably since watergate mm. well thanks to dr freeman for helping us make a little bit of sense of it thanks to marshall crenshaw as well check out the reissue of his 1999 album miracle of science with a couple of new cuts on there as well thanks to you for joining us this week on Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance. We'll see you next time right here.